Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why music really is universal to humans and what studying split-brain patients taught scientists about the brain. We'll also answer a listener question about the history of women shaving. Let's satisfy some curiosity. They say that music is the universal language, but is it really? I mean, music from all around the world sounds so different. Is it really possible that there's some universal thread that connects them all? According to a recent Harvard University analysis of music from world cultures, the answer is yes. In fact, music around the world is more alike than different. This might sound kind of obvious if you don't listen to a lot of different music from different cultures, but I took a world music class in college, and there's some stuff out there that you're just like, wow, this sounds absolutely nothing like anything that's produced in my hemisphere. Yeah, I mean, the harmonies, the rhythms, the types of instruments, they're all so different. The scales. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So that said, that's why these findings are really cool. And this isn't the first time scientists have tried to find commonalities among the music of the world. Like in 1900, German psychology professor Karl Stumpf used a phonograph to record Thai musicians. And that began a comparative musicology project that blossomed into more than 13,000 phonograph cylinders, at least before it came to a tragic end during World War II. The research field then languished for decades afterward, and scientists in the 1970s even frowned on it, figuring that world music was so diverse that there was no point in comparing them. Only recently have researchers like this Harvard team jumped back into the fray, and what they found is pretty remarkable. This new research supports the idea that music all around the globe shares important commonalities, despite lots of differences. First of all, music exists in every society, both with and without words. All societies dance. All societies' music strikes an aesthetic balance between monotony and chaos. We also use similar kinds of music for similar purposes. For example, dance music around the world is usually fast and rhythmic. The songs we use for lullabies are soft and slow all around the world. And healing songs tend to use fewer notes and space those notes more closely together than love songs. There's also the fact that music in all cultures has tonality. In other words, they build melodies from a small subset of notes from a bass or tonic pitch like 12 half-steps of the octave in Western music, or the 22 shruti of the Indian tonal system. In the end, the team concluded that music is more varied within societies than it is between societies. These and other findings suggest that there is something universal about music, and those universal properties probably reflect deeper truths about human cognition, that there's a human musicality that we all share. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Some of the most amazing discoveries in neuroscience have come out of unusual brain conditions. And this story from the 1960s is no exception. I'm talking about a series of experiments run by a neurobiologist named Michael Gazzaniga on split-brain patients. That is, people with two brain hemispheres that aren't connected. Those experiments taught us important things about how the brain delegates tasks. These patients had undergone a surgery called a corpus callosotomy, which separates the two halves of the cerebrum as a last resort treatment for epilepsy. Researchers found that when the two hemispheres were cut off from one another, they could each act on their own, as if they contained two separate spheres of consciousness. 
For example, one of the experiments involved flashing lights in each eye independently and asking the patient whether they saw anything. Each hemisphere of the brain controls the opposite side of the body. So when a patient's right eye saw the light, the patient was able to say yes because the left hemisphere controls speech. But when the left eye saw the light, the right hemisphere took over and they couldn't speak. But because the right hemisphere does have control over motor movements, they could raise their left hand to show they saw the light. The split brain condition wasn't debilitating for any of the patients, but it is worth mentioning that there were some side effects. One patient actually reported experiencing antagonism between his hands, with one hand, say, picking up a newspaper and the other just putting it right back down again. In the end, these experiments showed that certain regions do the heavy lifting on certain tasks, but the brain also distributes tasks across the hemispheres in a precise way. Gazzaniga's split brain experiments were a huge step in our understanding of how the developed adult brain delegates its functions. And if it wasn't for the dozen or so split brain patients willing to participate in his studies, that may have stayed a mystery for decades. Today's episode is sponsored by KiwiCo. A KiwiCo subscription makes the perfect activity kit for every young explorer, engineer, and artist in your life. Empower them to be creative, confident, and fearless in all their endeavors with KiwiCo's innovative projects. These projects will light up both sides of your kids' brains, not to mention light up their faces based on the kids I've seen working on KiwiCo projects. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids to make it fun to learn about STEAM, as in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. They're designed by experts and tested by kids. No need to research or worry about gathering all the supplies. KiwiCo is a convenient, affordable way to encourage your children to be anything they want to be. There's no commitment, you can cancel at any time, and monthly options start at just $16.95 a month, including shipping. And you, Curiosity Daily listener, can go to kiwico.com curiosity to get your first month free. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot curiosity. Every day counts when it comes to making a difference, so don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. Again, go to kiwico.com curiosity and get your first month free. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash curiosity. We got a listener question from Arjun, who asks, At what point of time in human history did we decide that women must be hairless? Great question, Arjun. Women and men have practiced some form of hair removal even before the first razors came on the scene around 5,000 years ago. Even in prehistoric times, people would use flakes of obsidian or seashells to remove hair from their faces and heads to prevent lice and frostbite. The intense heat in ancient Egypt led both men and women of the upper classes to use pumice stones, copper razors, and even hair removal creams and sugar waxes to take off all of their head and body hair. But some cultures around this time still had special standards for women. Women in the Middle East traditionally removed their body hair the night before their wedding, for example, and upper class women in ancient Rome would remove all of their body hair as well. I mean, have you ever seen a Roman statue of a woman with underarm hair? No, you have not. Aside from a sort of bizarre period when Elizabethan women would remove their eyebrows and recede their hairlines, women in the Western world really didn't care about hair removal until the 20th century. Why the change of heart? Why else? Advertising. 1915 marked what scholars call the Great Underarm Campaign, when the number of hair removal ads in the popular fashion magazine Harper's Bazaar multiplied, and the majority of them focused on the underarm. These ads generally stressed that the new styles of sleeveless gowns required bare underarms. 
Interestingly, legs didn't really become a focus until around World War II, when rationing made stockings hard to come by and hairy legs suddenly became more noticeable. But there's another reason for women's hair removal that scholars point to. Gender roles. After all, men are generally hairier than women, and culturally, the opposite of masculine is feminine. It's no coincidence that this hair removal craze happened right around the time that many other gender rules were being broken. Women were getting the vote and wearing less constricting clothing. Some say hair removal was a reaction to this breakdown in the gender binary. But whatever the reason, by the 1960s, 98% of women removed at least some body hair. But that might be changing. Celebrities, fashion ads, and even hair removal brands have started putting women's body hair back in the spotlight to stress that women can choose their own grooming habits. The tide may be turning. Thanks for your question, Arjun. If you have a question, send it in to podcast at curiosity.com. Before we recap what we learned today, here's a sneak peek at what you'll hear next week on Curiosity Daily. Next week, you'll learn about whether teleportation will ever be possible, why we blurt things out at inappropriate times, what those little black dots are on windshields, an important rule for friendship and dating, and more. So now, let's recap what we learned today. Well, we learned that there's a common thread that unites world music all around the globe. Many common threads. A Many. common tapestry, if you will. A tapestry. And that the human brain can function even when threads are removed between the two hemispheres. That is so cool. I actually remember watching a video about these experiments when I was in like junior high science class. And it, it just sent shivers down my spine. It's like, I have two brains in my head. If you just disconnect them, I have two brains. Isn't that's that a, wild? That's a lot of brains. <laughs> it is. <laughs> And I learned that people have been removing hair from their bodies for centuries, but women started doing it more in the Western world around World War II, basically thanks to fashion marketing. You got to sell those razors. And everything. Everything. It's all about the money. Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer, Cameron Duke, and Kelsey Donk, and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Script writing was by Cody Goff and Sonia Hodgen. Curiosity Daily is produced and edited by Cody Goff. Have a great weekend and join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.